newspapermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. The Media Project is underway. A half hour of commentary and analysis on the recent issues in the news media with a bunch of veteran journalists from New York's capital region. Here we are. I'm Rex Smith, formerly editor of the Times Union, with Judy Patrick, formerly editor of the Daily Gazette. Rosemary Armeo, <laughs> formerly... Oh, gee, Rosemary has too long formerly a resume. Formerly professor. I'm now working even harder at the University of Albany. And Alan Shartok, once and forever the CEO of Northeast Public Radio, formerly the editor of the Fire Island Gazette. Not uh, I keep we got to get that. So oh, thank God no. that's out of the way. Son, and it was only one year, and it was the alternative newspaper. Oh, and I wasn't the editor; I was the publisher. Oh, which was more important. Oh my gosh, I mean, and you know they say that in journalism, getting your facts right is the basic hack minimum. And sure. after that, you can do great journalism. That's what my great mentor used to say. So I'm sorry, Alan, I got the facts wrong. That's sort of fundamental. There's nothing to be sorry about, Rex. Thank you, thank you. So here's a question for you, Alan. If you were the publisher of the Wall. Street Journal. Let's just hypothesize. If you were in charge of the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, uh, I mean, other than deciding that you would publish that fine Alan Shartok column that they've so far avoided, would you, Alan, have published a letter to the editor from Donald Trump claiming that there was, in fact, a rigged election? Should the former president get his say in the Wall Street Journal, or do you think that's not a good idea? Well, you know, uh, I'm going to get beaten up by the rest of you. But the truth of the matter is that I understand the Wall Street Journal sees itself and has to burnish its conservative credentials with their public, their constituency. And I notice for those of you who are listening to the radio but who can't see through the radio, all three of my colleagues have their faces down and Rosemary is shaking her head in violent disagreement. But the fact is I do understand that they have their own problems with their constituency. Other people want to take away their audience and say we're the real conservative group and the rest of it. So the former president of the United States writes a letter in which he tells the same lies he's been telling all along because, as you all know, he's a lying, 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 lying liar. The New York Times wouldn't have published that letter, I don't think. And that's the crux of it. I understand why they published the letter Nobody has been more severe in their criticism of that particular miscreant than I have, Donald Trump. Nevertheless, I get why they did it. It's not printing the letter that is the problem. There's no issue with that whatsoever. It's printing it without any contextualization, without any counter, without any indication that it's full of lies and it's full of old stuff. Newspapers, whether they're conservative or not, that's not the issue, are not supposed to print old lies. When a newspaper prints anything, it gives it some legitimacy. It gives it its platform. Donald Trump has entered the realm of delusional old guy who writes letters to the editor that are full of conspiracy theories. And who may, I'm sorry for interrupting, Judy, but who may end up the next president of the United States. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. We wouldn't print letters to the editor from the mayor, from the governor, from your senator if they were full of lies. Letters to the editor go through the same fact-checking as anything else. And one of the other issues is Donald Trump has been kicked off Facebook, but this letter to the editor is all over Facebook. Can I just say something? Go ahead. I hear you. <laughs> and, and I would argue, would you let Donald Trump come on your airwaves and read that letter? 
verbatim. Uh-huh. If, if Donald Trump made a telephone call to, <laughs> to the news director, certainly not to me. Oh, no. I would hope that one way or another we would get Trump on. But the beauty of that would be the ability to question him about the veracity of his letter. Well, there you go, which the Wall Street Journal chose not to do. The Wall Street Journal standards we now know are below those of Facebook, below those of Twitter. That is the Wall Street Journal opinion page. But it does, unfortunately, call into question the entire operation. That's the difficulty, because even we who know that opinion pages are not the same as the news columns, still, I think it just taints the brand of the Wall Street Journal, that Murdoch rag. And so I think you can't work for a news corporation and consider yourself a journalist of high ethical standards. I I don't think that bothers Rupert Murdoch at all. I think he just loves it that every place in America, including us today, are talking about the Wall Street Journal. That's his goal. Or that a president of the United... I'm sorry, Rosemary. Yeah, I think that that he's using Trump. The former president of the United States, who also was probably very thrilled any time that we're talking about him. Well, but is is President Clinton a former president of the United States? Exactly. Then how come we refer to him all the time as President Clinton? Not me. It's a common courtesy that you give a retired person the last title they had. We call her Secretary Clinton on the other part. You know, this whole controversy happened to the New York Times last year when they printed a letter from Tom Cotton, a senator who at the time was a strong candidate to be Secretary of Defense, who said, call out the military. Let's take care of all these protests in the cities. You remember Mm -hmm. that? And the staff at the New York Times rose up in protest, said... The same things we've said here, like Judy, this gave real high prominence to a letter that did not deserve it, and it was not fact-checked or countered in the newspaper. It just ran as if it was fact. And the editor lost his job. Staffers changed places. There was a new policy and stronger institution of standards. You think that's going to happen at the Wall Street Journal? Well, yes. I don't. And that raises an interesting question, doesn't it, if I may, Rex? The higher standards Uh, of the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And, And what the differences between those two institutions are. I mean, the Wall Street Journal is not the newspaper of record of the United States, but informally anyway, I think the New York Times is. So the comparison is not apt or apt or whatever. Wait, so the Wall Street Journal, which is one of the most influential and important newspapers in the world, prints a letter that's not about economics at all. It's about politics and our electoral system. So they took on that as their platform. I don't, I'm not sure I see what the difference I see. (laughs) And and I know this is a small point, but I would argue that Donald Trump didn't even write that letter. Of course not. He he probably gave it his stamp. The spelling was all correct, so you know it's... Well, Judy, Judy, I really have to defer to you and to say we should disqualify every letter from every public official that they didn't write. And speeches. And by the way, the 1957 Pulitzer Prize for Profiles and Courage. Did John Kennedy, in fact, write that book? No. Nevertheless, we all get hoodwinked sometimes. Except for poor Andrew. He's getting you know, poor a lot Andrew. of trouble for not writing his own book, you know? <laughs> wow. Poor Andrew. Well, keep to be picking fair, on him. I hate to be fair to Andrew, believe me, because it's not fair to be. But I would say the rap on Andrew was not that he didn't write the book. The rap on Andrew was that he accepted help from the paid employees of the governor's office. Help writing the book. Well, well, we don't know exactly how deep it went, but whatever it was. But the revenue went to him. 
the five the million dollars. The revenue went to him, and yeah. not only that, is there going to be a book? I don't suspect so. That's a free five million. Wow, they pulled it. Yeah, the yep. publishers yep. pulled it. Good question. Well, while we're talking about the intersection of politics and journalism, what about this New York Times opinion columnist Nick Kristoff, who's now running for governor of Oregon? You know, there have been journalists who have gone into politics before. Yeah, yeah. All kinds of people change careers. Even actors go into politics, but. It seems to me this is sort of a qualitatively different thing. Somebody who has reported from around the world, somebody who has lived in New York City, suddenly deciding, I'm going to go home and run for governor of Oregon. Is that inappropriate for a journalist to suddenly say, I'm giving up this platform that has given me the stature that I've had, that, that has given me this independence? You think it's okay for a journalist to run for office? Well, Rex, when you were editor of the Times Union and Judy, the Independent Gazette of Schenectady. Daily Gazette uh, of Schenectady. <laughs> I get it. Independent is part of the slogan, not the name. Yeah. Then, then, then the question is, did you ask your people when they came on, I have a reason for asking this question, will you swear to me that you will never run for public <laughs> office? The reason I ask that is that when I went to work for Channel 6, when a really reputable guy was running that place, Don Decker. Those are the uh, days. Yeah, those are the days. And he literally said, you're going to be on every night, but you have to tell me that you will never use this to run for office. And I dutifully said so. And then one of our colleagues in the Albany Press Corps, which we have talked about before, decided he had to write a news story. And the news story basically said there are five people being considered for the Public Service Commission. <laughs> and the fifth was me. Of course, I didn't know what the Public Service Commission was at, <laughs> was at the time. It was a and fabrication? Decker, it was. Decker called me into the office, and he chewed me out like I've never seen before and said, you swore to me that you weren't going to do this and the rest of it. And then he picked up the phone. I said, Don, I, know, I don't know what the Public Service Commission is. He picked up the phone. He called the guy. The guy said, oh, I did it as a joke. That's a reporter. It ran across the top five columns of the paper. It, it seems to me that journalism is a fine preparation for a career in politics, much better than, say, acting or being on a reality TV show, mm -hmm. and that there's no problem with this whatsoever. I myself would like to go into politics, although I don't have Christoph standing and, and so would not aim for a governorship, but I'd like to run on the school board. Is that bad? I think the bad thing would be that if he's governor and he's still doing journalism, mm. or if you're on the school board and you're still writing about education, yeah, mm. I see a problem there. Mm. But to switch careers, why not? Well, doesn't it affect the journalism that is done to cover it? It's not so bad, I guess, because it's a national outlet versus local. If he had been a columnist for the Portland Oregonian, it would make it difficult for the Oregonian to maintain the aura of credibility and independence. For example, in Florida 20 years ago, the publisher of the Miami Herald, Bill Lawrence, wasn't Bill that his Lawrence, name? Yeah. Decided he wanted to run for lieutenant governor, I think. Eventually, he didn't get enough support to be able to make the race. But it immediately put his newspaper into a very awkward situation of how do you cover the boss if he's running for governor? Uh, Come on, you all have been in newsrooms. We all have our enemies within the newsroom. You just assign someone who hates them to it. <laughs> <laughs> so just so I understand what the issue is, you know, you, you folks who are always talking about the credibility of the news media, you know, and people losing faith in the news media because they become political prostitutes. The issue then is, are you concerned that the people who don't think well of the media are going to think worse of it because somebody's running for office? I think it just raises 
questions in the eyes of the public. Whenever they hear a journalist or see something that a journalist does, they're thinking, is that person angling for a role in politics? If you're listening to Chuck Todd on NBC and you say, you know what, this guy's going to move from meet the press to running for president or something. I, I mean, I think there is that question of credibility of the dude with the bow tie on Fox, Tucker Carlson who, by the way, gave up bow ties, I mm -hmm. believe, in part so that he wouldn't look like he was a clown. It uh, didn't work. It didn't work. <laughs> he still is. But the fact is, Tucker Carlson, I think, is a potential Republican presidential candidate. And we ought to take everything he says with that idea in mind. I just think it's damaging to journalism when journalists abandon this role and take on that role. I think it's better to become an overt candidate like Christoph than, say, Chris Cuomo, who was an advisor to a governor, which is a political role, and it was hidden both from his station and from the public. That seems to me to be a conflict of interest. Christoph seems to be a changing career. There is a problem with the public perceiving the press as being not independent, not a fourth estate at all, but part of politics. That's true. But him not running is not going to change it. It comes from our close ties with politicians that you talk to. We know more about politics than everybody else. We hang on the news. That isn't going to change. There is a connection between the two institutions. Right. You know, in general, I never have thought a good journalist would ever make a good politician. Often they're not very likable. They tend to like to see both sides of an issue go down the middle. And what I hate most of all are politicians auditioning for, you know, lucrative gigs on cable television news, right. um, which you often see, oh, I'll do this press gaggle because mm -hmm. I want to end up on the morning show and make a lot more money than I am as senator or a congressperson. And that ends up being a career choice that the current structure of cable television facilitates, enables, encourages. ESPN2 now, the second channel of ESPN, is carrying live commentary on football games by the Manning brothers, Eli and Peyton Manning, talk about football as it's happening. And it's very entertaining. And it seems to me that that is sports journalism, if you want to call it that, taking a cue from political journalism. Get the experts right off the field and put them in front of a camera and let them be the commentators. That's interesting. On the one hand, you get the expertise, which the Mannings bring, but you also wonder, is that person now a commentator or are they actually angling to get back into office if you're a politician? With yeah. the failure of American newspapers, oh, I'm sorry, I said that to you guys. They're oh, dead. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, it's I'm all dead. Oh, all bets are off, and everybody's looking for a change in the payment system. So we can sit here, graybeards as some of us are. And, <laughs> and, <Sorry>. uh, <laughs> and not all of us. <laughs> I said some of us. Keep right. digging the hole, man. Keep digging. <laughs> and pontificate about what people shouldn't be doing in this particular year when everything is up for grabs. Hmm. You know, we have lost a lot of turf in straightforward journalism and honest journalism to the digital masters, let's say, uh, masters of the universe, Facebook being most notorious. And now comes really the most damning story about Facebook yet, I think, as reported by the Washington Post, that five years ago, Facebook users changed the algorithm that decides what people see in their newsfeed. And they use the uh, algorithm of ranking to treat emoji reactions as five times more valuable than likes. So the emoji like anger and so on, Facebook programmed its algorithm to surface content that angered users. 
in order to drive more interaction. So they are intentionally dividing people in order to get more attention. And this now, of course, is where people are getting their news from social media as opposed to well, from, you know, other sources. Well, you've always, I mean, come on, Rex, you've always had real questions about the social media. They ate your and every other newspaper's lunch, and different times you've discussed how they probably ought to be paying the newspapers for the content that they're using. Mm -hmm. and other there's things. a good so, idea. So there's a certain amount of sour grapes behind your gray beard, uh, <laughs> Rex. You know, so I think our listeners should know that there's always that sort of competition between the newspapers and the social media and which... Is that granted? Are you in the side of Facebook or journalism? <laughs> well, you, you, you give me an unacceptable choice, I think it's, I think it's scary to think how manipulatable we are, that an emoji and the power of using it mathematically really does set us off. Well, there's been numbers of examples of that. Facebook has helped to incite genocide in Burma and great partisanship here. And not just Facebook, the other social media do the same. Newspapers did not do that. Maybe they couldn't. Technology has changed that. They didn't have algorithms. They couldn't point you to the direction of one story or another to read the way social media does. I think it's really pretty frightening. You know, you have no greater fan than I, than I am. But, in all, but. In, in, all, in all honesty, Rosemary, one of the reasons that you are so successful at what you do is that you raise the other side of the issue all the time. It's called Put another way, the pot, yes. Yeah, you, you like to fight. And on this program, every once in a while, when things are getting even more boring than usual... Try... And could you get to the point? <laughs> and there you go. That's exactly my point. We try to warm things up by stirring the pot, you know, a little bit. And um, you think that's what Facebook is doing? They're just stirring the pot? No, but I do think it is what it is. They're going to be what they are. The United States Congress clearly hates them for a lot of reasons. And, it unites you know, the left and the right. Hatred for Facebook. How about that? We finally come together. That's right. Can we talk a little bit oh, more boy. about this? Because no, Facebook does more her. than just uh, uh, encourage people to hate things more than they encourage people to like things. What they've done is designed algorithms that encourage news organizations to sensationalize content. And we have been pawns in this game. It's an unfair fight because we didn't know what their algorithm was. We just just kind of say, oh, well, it really works when we put pretty young women, you know, on our site. Let's put more of those up because that seems to get us a lot of clicks. We didn't know what was working. But if you write a story about the, the zoning board, oh, nobody reads that. Well, it's because Facebook would bury it in your newsfeed. I'm getting tons of crappy content in my Facebook newsfeed. And I know newspapers are putting up legitimate stories of public interest, but they get buried. And Facebook knew it was happening, and they continued to do it because that's what engaged people the longest. And they're manipulating the people, the psychology of the people, and they're manipulating the news media. And there's a way to fix it. And um, and they should be ordered to do so. And what the way, is the way? The way is, yeah. Change the algorithm. Simple as that. If only we knew what the algorithms were. In this country, when corporations get so powerful that they squelch competition, that they affect the public health, the government usually steps in. That happened when Theodore Roosevelt was president and got engaged in busting the trusts that were then manipulating people. It happened as a result of great journalism that uncovered the public health menace of slaughterhouses and so on. We got the first public health laws. That kind of thing is where Congress needs to act now, is to take on these giants that are manipulating opinion and destroying journalism in this country 
it is time for Congress to step in. We're learning about this, by the way, because of good journalism, because of the whistleblower, uh, well, for first, beginning with her, with Frances Haugen, but she got together a, a consortium of journalists and put all of the, the Facebook papers, as they're called, available for the Washington Post, the New York Times, CNN, Associated Press, basically to make a consortium of journalists, as we've seen a number of times. The organization that Rosemary worked for that was a, a part of the uh, Panama Papers. Can I say one thing about the consortium approach? What happened, though? I, I like the, the fact that everybody had access and they had some embargo but I thought they flooded the zone with too much content at once. Yeah. And there's so much to read, I can't keep up with it. And would a better approach been to you know string it out? Probably not. But I don't know how to rank what's important because there's so much important information. They have done that. They've done the ranking. The, the consortium approach, of course, you know, I did work with an organization that used that. And the thinking is that you come out in a wide range of places that came out worldwide in a number of different countries all at the same time so that everybody is talking about it. And no one's going to read all those stories except lawmakers, perhaps. And so it doesn't matter if you're confused and you don't know what's important. They've already done the ranking and said this is the best stuff we have, and it's the one that's most strongly supported with the evidence, and here you go. Read it at your leisure. It's not designed to be read in full by every reader. Isn't that true of all crusades? I mean, at the time, did you read every word of Watergate? I actually did, <laughs> but most people do not. And the Panama Papers, really interested in it. I know the gist of it, but I haven't read every word of it. Only when I'm paid to edit those stories do I read every part of it. And I think that's true for all of us. But actually, it shows that competition is not always a great force in journalism because this sort of collaboration made a difference. We first, in contemporary times, if you can call 1977 contemporary, we first saw this in the organization Rosemary used to head, the investigative reporters and editors, basically came together around the death of Don Bowles in Arizona, right. an investigative reporter who was blown up during an investigation, and a group of reporters from around the country with my old colleague Bob Green at the helm came together to try to finish the work that was being done by Don Bowles before he was murdered. A, to finish the reporting, B, to send a signal that you don't kill journalists and get away with it Correct. because the investigation will continue. So I think this kind of uh, collaboration, sorry for that little diversion there. Uh, no, it is. It's, that's the history of collaboration. It's really an important thing. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, the idea is you can kill a journalist, but you can't kill a story. Right. And it's the same with this. And technology has changed things because there are millions of records in the Facebook papers or in the Pandora papers, millions of records. And one Wall Street journalist did have all of them. She went first to one reporter. He could not write fast enough because it's more than just taking the papers and turning them into stories. You got to check it. You got to get the other side. You got to make sure it's all accurate and still up to date. Papers are in the past. It took him almost a year to come out with the first series of stories on Facebook. So they then go wider, which is smart. She's a whistleblower who really considered what she was doing, the impact on herself, and how to get the widest bang for the risk that she was taking. And when she saw that, okay, that's all I can get out of a year, she then spreads the paper to everyone. And that's why you're seeing an array of stories, because they are competing. New York Times, in fact, has done reporting beyond what's in hmm. the papers, and they broke the embargo, according to their competitors, but they said, no, no, the deal was we had to hold the stuff that came out of the papers. We went beyond that. So the whistleblowing inspired more original reporting. It's extremely healthy. I think you need both competition and cooperation and editors who know when one is required over the other. 
And now there's a call to make the data more available to more media organizations. Right. The issue is that there's some redactions that are needed, and maybe this is a time when a, a good librarian or some central repository could clean it up before they make it publicly available so everybody can see what's in there. Okay, on one of our favorite topics here, dealing with misinformation, there's a little bit of that out there. There's now a new public benefit corporation that has been backed by some billionaires, including George Soros, called Good Information, Inc. Good Information Incorporated aims to fund and scale businesses that cut through echo chambers with fact-based information. As part of its mission, it plans to invest in local news companies. So the notion here is that while this is being backed and, and launched by progressives, the idea is that this could make investments in entities across the political spectrum so long as their editorial standards support fact-based information, a counter to the fact-affected but not fact-governed work that seems to now permeate the digital media. Right. So this is a bit of good information. Well, Soros, his name attached to it, taints it immediately. Yeah. It's going to be like, what's the group out of Canada? Snopes? Snoops? Snoops. Yeah. And so if you want to check whether something is true, you can go there. They do a fabulous job. They do a really excellent job. They're completely discounted, though, however, by conservatives who say, ah, they're tainted. They're liberal. And this is Soros' name on. He is. Yeah. He's done amazing work for freedom of the press around the globe, and yet he is painted as the font of all evil by conservatives. I, he's someone else like Hillary Clinton. I have no idea how he became such a target, but he is. Hmm. You know, it's good intentions, but I would argue there are dozens of fact-checking organizations out there, and there are more than 7,000 newspapers out there that like to focus on the facts, and there are countless other radio stations, television stations, and digital websites that are true journalism entities that do focus on facts. It's a little redundant. Hmm, interesting. Notwithstanding the fact, though, that there are these billionaires who care enough about this issue that they're investing. Craig Newmark, founder of Craigslist, has created philanthropy that supports factual reporting, actually also has been underwriting the Graduate School of Journalism at CUNY. Mm -hmm. In New York, Steve Ballmer, the Microsoft CEO, has done the same thing. Lauren Powell Jobs has what she calls the Emerson Collective. So these are rich people who recognize the peril to society by misinformation information and they're trying to do something about it by supporting real journalism here 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 right I mean next thing you know they'll start donating to the WAMC fund drive Alan. And, and while you mention that Rex I want to congratulate you on naming another institution of higher journalism other than Columbia <laughs> I, I just want to point out that those benefactors are some of the same people who put us in the position where we need their assistance too they wreck the model they uh, they take content and use it for free so I'm not quite ready to applaud them along with you all right that's pretty good. And that means we're out of time. Oh, no. Oh. This program ought to be an hour. <laughs> <laughs> That's all, folks. Alan Shartok, Rosemary Armeo, Judy Patrick, and I'm Rex Smith. With thanks to our producer, David Gustina, and to you for joining us this week on The Media Project. You edit it. <laughs> now, publishers of such interesting people... 
Their policy is an acrobatic thing. The Media Project is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Alan Shartok is CEO of WAMC, Professor Emeritus at the State University of New York, commentator, columnist, and author. Rex Smith is the former editor of the Albany Times Union. Judy Patrick is the vice president for editorial development for the New York Press Association. And Rosemary Armeo is an investigative journalist and adjunct professor at the University at Albany. You can listen to or podcast the Media Project anytime at WAMC.com. Org, or just download the WAMC app for your iPhone or Android at the Play Store today. Thanks for listening. Let's give three cheers for freedom of the press. <laughs>